Life Audio. Hey, welcome to the Gospel Rant Advent Christmas 2022 podcast series, a different kind of Christmas pageant. We're on the third of this series. If this is the your first one, you can always go back a couple weeks before. They're always on Saturdays until Christmas Eve. I'm Dr. Bill Sinyard with Gospel App Ministries. Uh, and, and again, for you who have joined us, this may be a little bit different. It's a rant. It's not a sermon. So we want feedback and we're going to make some suggestions and we're going to uh, we're going to have some fun. We're going to go into research. There's a lot of things that haven't been said about the birth of Jesus and the typical Christmas pageant and the many tragic characters. Uh, one of the ones I point out is Zechariah. How many messages have you or Bible studies have you heard about Zechariah, the, the shamed priest? But no one has more verses I mean, not even close in the entire Christmas pageant and the Christmas story. All right, we'll we'll cover him in uh, on Christmas Eve. So we're continuing on with our series on the Sermon on the Mount. That'll be in parallel with this series. The Sermon on the Mount podcast comes out on Sunday. Check that out. Uh, we're looking at prayer and the Lord's Prayer in particular. Lots of fun. Pass it on to your friends. Tell one person uh, about the gospel rant. We thank you ahead of time. If you want to get feedback, look. We encourage it. Bill at gospel-app.com, and I will get back to you. You won't be the first. (laughs) Believe me, we love it. All right, today we're going to look at the tragic character, King Herod, and we're going to try to figure out what that tells us more about the gospel or about my heart. There's a lot here. It has a very, very modern ring to it. You'll see he was a vicious, tyrannical king who was ridiculously feared And yet I think that we can make some guesses that might have been motivating him, uh, uh, shaping who he was. And and I think there's going to be an aha or two. Let me know, bill at gospel-app.com. Before we plunge in, we're going to take a break to hear from some sponsors. And when we come back, we'll go right into a short skit from Gospel Rant, Not Ready for Primetime Players. Remember that? Yeah. Anyway, it's called Angels We Have Heard on High. Stick around and enjoy. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Hey, welcome back. Here is Angels We Have Heard on High. We begin in the Heavenly War Room with Commander Gabriel, ready to give the orders to Michael. Enjoy. Commander Michael, at ease, it's time. God help us, it's time. You mean the time? The coming of the king time? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And not a moment too soon. Have you seen what's happening down there? It is a free-for-all. Aye, everyone is buffing their own noses. No one's seeing anyone else. Adequate, uncaring creatures all. I'm fair scunnered. I don't want to be there when the king arrives. It'll be a right scalping, to be sure. So, the Angel Army troops are ready. We head to Rome. Won't that scunner Augustus be surprised? A tad fire and a wee thunder, and he'll be wetting his toga for sure. Um, no, it's not going to go down like that, uh, Commander Michael. No? No. Well, then what's the plan, man? Well, so first you go and recruit some shepherds uh, near Jerusalem. Are you daft? I didn't hear you correctly. Did you say shepherds? Are we going to rally sheep? Michael, Michael, calm down. Me? No, you need to simmer. So where do we find faithful shepherds anyway? We need the righteous ones, eh? Um, no, not this time. Just the garden variety, sheep watchers. No need for any purity tests. Just bring them all, men, women, boys, girls. Gather them up and tell them this. You ready? You might want to write this down. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Are you Are you getting this, Michael? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, and this will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, get that, swaddling clothes, and lying in a manger. What? Out of you off your heed? Are we going to stampede the Roman fortress with stuffed wool sweaters and some excited idiots? No, no, no. Uh, here's the thing. We're, we're ordaining the shepherds, right? Men, women, boys, and girls, right? To be God's new prophets, to be the first ones to go and see the miracle birth of the baby Jesus and then go and tell, wait a minute, who'd your weast? The Myers deceive me to just say, baby Jesus, a bra we God laddie? No, Michael, it's not exactly what I said, but okay, that's the gist. I think you're basically getting it. No, no, I'm totally ramfoozled. Let me see if I have it right. We have the rabid sheep charging the Roman phalanx and the great king, a tiny baron and a nappy? Oh, my, I knew this wouldn't go well. Well, then tell me straight, man. What's the plan? you root your face. All right, uh, let me keep going. And then we want you to lead the other angels, the the other soldiers in a chorus, okay? And here it is. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. We'll give you the music. You know, I'm, I'm happy to, to praise God Almighty. God knows I will. But what's the rest of the plan? Then I need swords and armor and myriad of armies. Are we charging the Roman fortress to slap them on the grills with some lamb chops? How about we buy them a pint instead and get bloodered? No, uh, no, that's it. And then you stand down and let the rest of the plan unfold. Oh, 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 I cannot wait to tell the rest of the boys. I'm easy. They may have questions. So praise God, for he it is kind, his mercy lasts for I. Give thanks with heart and mind to God of gods always, for certainly his mercy. 
Well, today we look at the tragic life of Herod the Great. Here's Matthew 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where's the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship, and the word is proskuneo, literally bow to the ground. It's a strong, normal use of the word. It's to bow to deity or a deified human king. Uh, so we've seen his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. Well, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and the words tarasso, agitated, mentally distressed. I mean, he was, he was tripping and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, by the way, when all, all Jerusalem with him, that just intensified King Herod. So they saw this, this uh, camel entourage, and the people in Jerusalem were freaking out because they came to worship another king. Everybody knew King Herod wasn't going to be kind to them, right? So when Herod had called together all the chief people's chief priests and teachers of the law, and literally the experts of both uh, the two major religious sects, the highly polarized Sadducees and Pharisees. Uh, so the high priests, the leading rabbinic scribes, I mean, he, he, he formed a committee, and he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, or by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship, the same proskuneo, not likely he's going to do it, so that I may worship him. And And the... <laughs> You know, it, it seems like uh, when this star appeared, we're guessing, assuming that that's what Matthew is saying, that's when the child was born. So this is sometime after the child was born. Uh, many traditions hold that to be true. The kings, the magi, sorry, didn't show up at the birth of Jesus. It was later, probably, likely. Verse 9. After they had heard the king, that's the magi, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed to him and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned, krimatitso, which is a divine oracle, in a dream, not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up! He said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child and kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Well, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious through Mo'o. He was enraged. The idea is he's so angry he couldn't even speak. Uh, that's not uncommon, as we understand uh, with Herod. He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinities who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. So again, this makes people speculate that it was two years later that the Magi appeared. Verse 17, then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. 
Matthew 2, 1 to 18. All right, as I said in the last podcast, Herod is the picture of alienation. In attachment theory terms, I'm a big fan of attachment theory. I just finished speaking at the National Association of Christian Social Workers on attachment theory simplified for adults. Uh, Big fan of it uh, for a lot of things. But, you know, Herod would have been in the category of fearful. The categories are formed by quadrants of feeling enoughness and then connectedness or in his case, lack of enoughness and lack of connectedness. And I'll I'll say more about that. So don't feel like you're lost out. I'm going to explain all of this. The fearful quadrant would be a combination of anxiousness, anxiety, and avoidance, the attachment theory styles. And and an extreme, and I think Herod would be extreme, it would be destructive. No matter what he did, what human heights he rose to, what he accomplished, buildings he built, in his subconscious, he was never enough. He was a failure even when he built massive, spectacular, built like the temple, the, the, the new temple for the Jews. All right. And what do I mean by enoughness? Here's David Zoll in his book, Seculosity. Listen carefully and you'll hear the word enough everywhere, especially when it comes to ang- the anxiety, loneliness, exhaustion, and division that plague our moment to such tragic proportions. You'll hear about people scrambling to be successful enough, happy enough, thin enough, wealthy enough, influential enough, desired enough, charitable enough, woke enough, good enough. We believe instinctively, were we to reach some benchmark in our minds, then value, vindication, and love would be ours, that if we got enough, we would be enough. So uh, part of what I'm saying is we should all be able to relate somewhat. All of us want this enoughness. And for Herod, it would be, I'm going to explain, but it would be Jewish enough to be Roman enough, to be king enough, to, to have enough, enough gravitas to be respected as a great king. And Herod, in spite of all the things that he did, never, ever got there. He was not Hasmonean enough. His predecessors, the Hasmoneans, who retained many supporters, many supporters in the land of Israel, including the temple elite, they exuded external Greek royalty. They were elite. They were pious. They were erudite. They were classy. And by the way, they were also Jewish. So in a word, in that region, they had gravitas. And that's what the people came to expect and wanted. And Herod never felt it. Herod, I, I think it's fair to say he was a street fighter, relatively speaking, uneducated. I mean, compared to the Hasmoneans, he came from royal line, but not the royalty of a Greek urban environment. He came from rather Bedouin people. He would be seen as a bit of a rube, a fish out of water, an erudite ruling class Jerusalem. And I think he felt it. This persona not appearing kingly would haunt Herod all of his days. And I think he felt despised. I think he became paranoid feeling despised and then became murderous and vicious and destructive. See, one gets the idea that Herod woke up feeling despised, uh, feeling like an outsider, feeling like he had to prove himself, and feeling at the end of the day he never could. He was an Idumean. He was a Nabataean, if you will, a soldier, but really an awkward leader in so many ways. I mean, he played the game really well internationally. I'll, I'll say something about that, but he was never loved. Uh, in the absence of love and devotion, fear will do. And he was perhaps one of the most feared kings of Israel, of the Jews, right? Enoughness is related to shame. Maybe that's a better word. Shame happens when someone realizes that they're not experiencing enoughness, and they come to believe that it's their fault. 
something is wrong with them. Something's broken. Something is off. Something they can't fix. You know, they would say, I'm not enough to have real relationship where someone gets me and likes me, appreciates me, will really, really think I'm great, where my life matters to others and to God, where I have a legacy. One blogger described enoughness as a critical part of our brain. The, the blogger says that critical letter voice exists in all of us, reminding us that we aren't good enough and don't deserve anything good. It tends to be louder and meaner in some of us than others, and it tends to pick on us more or less at different points in our lives. Yet one thing's for sure, as long as we're listening to this dangerous critic that twists our reality, again, think Herod, we cannot really trust our own perceptions of what others think of us. To one degree or another, we're lonely and we feel broken. Um, so biblical enoughness, is that's the essence of the word righteousness. I need to feel right, whole within myself and in relationship to others, and in particular, God. Um, what Jesus did for us, we Christians 2,000 years ago, to put it in attachment theory terms, is he purchased enoughness in my relationship with God. So now, strictly because of what Jesus did on my behalf, God feels towards me, sees me as enough. And the passion of the Spirit on a daily basis in my inner being is to make me feel more of that today. You know, Herod never got that. For Herod, the thing that he couldn't live without, the thing that if he would lose it, he would just die, was the designation and the public acclamation of the king of the Jews. I mean, he was technically that. Roman Senate proclaimed that. But you know what? Uh, Man, he was only that by force in Judea. And it surely, he thought that the title that he got in 37 B.C. might end his sense of alienation and lack of enoughness in the eyes of others, uh, the eyes of his dead father. But in the end, he remained illegitimate. And to some degree, I, I kind of think he knew it. All right. This is a good time to take another sponsor break. We'll be back in no time. Then we'll dig more into the little known history of Herod and try to understand what, what difference that makes to the gospel. See you in a minute. Welcome back. Brief history. In 37 BC, so 32 years before Jesus's birth, Herod, the bloody and aggressive tetrarch of Galilee, long a supporter of Rome and seen as a usurper to the Hasmoneans, would be appointed by Augustus and the Roman Senate as the king of the Jews. I mean, it's little known that Herod really got along well with Augustus. It wasn't like Augustus didn't know what was going on. Augustus loved Herod. So Herod had finally achieved what he thought would be the end all. But the joy of that achievement, got a, it was fleeting for him. For his first seven years on the fragile throne, there were legit Hasmoneans, uh, former rulers, right, who lost their throne. They wanted to dethrone, uh, uh, they wanted to undermine Herod. They wanted to be kings again. So Antigonus, the son of Aristobulus, was supported by the Sadducees, the Parthians, and many, many Jews. So in 30 BC, Herod had him executed. And Cleopatra, remember Cleopatra? She thought she could be the king, queen of the Jews. After all, the Ptolemies in Egypt ruled over Judea for many years until 200 BC. So Herod always had to look over his shoulders to the, to the south. And it wasn't until Antony's defeat by Octavian in 31 BC that Herod could stop worrying about losing Judea to her. And then there was the Parthians, the vast empire to the east, right? Think Persia, think Babylon, think Assyria. They wanted Judea as well. They were always a threat 
the Sadducees within Judea, the wealthy, very important ruling class of Jerusalem, were ruthless in their support of anyone other than Herod. Even though Herod worked really, really, really hard to get their attention and their support, never did. He spent a huge fortune uh, on the new and improved temple of God in Jerusalem. And, and by the way, including many significant changes from God's Torah blueprint, adding a couple of new courts, expanding the courts, raising the temple higher than before, than even God wanted it. I mean, that's the kind of the feel, I think. He no doubt thought he was adding to its glory, but so many Jews believed that it was an arrogant and insensitive tin-eared to the authority of Torah. He was challenging God. He was trying to improve on God's design. I mean, think about that. Symbolically, the temple was Herod's challenge to God himself, ultimately. Scrolls, they, they said what God wanted. Herod largely ignored the Old Testament, and the great temple ended up being as much Greek and Roman as it was Jewish. But after one argument, he had the high priestly robes put under guard in the Antonio Fortress, and tragically, in a politically mixed message, he put he ended up putting an image of the Roman eagle over the one of the temple's gates. Can you imagine? I mean, if there was any uh, goodwill that came from building a new temple, then he does that. Oh man, uh, his anger got the best of him. So in the end. He was despised by the Sadducees, the temple elite. There was a rumor going around that Herod pillaged gold from the tombs of the kings, including David and Solomon. Well, you can imagine, Herod woke up with all of that. So what do you do? Herod did what Herod did best. He undermined the power and authority uh, that the Hasmoneans had given to the Sadducean elites. He chose two high priests from outside the exclusive Jerusalem temple priestly community. He chose one from Babylon, one from Egypt. Can you imagine? I mean, uh, oh, <laughs> what, a, what a poke in the eye, a flexing of the muscles. Um, and there's nothing they could do because uh, he's Herod, but they despised him, the Sadduceans, and they sought to undermine him any possible way they could, uh, including getting the Parthians or the, the Sadducees to do something. Now, Herod, in a awkward stumbling political move that's going to come back to haunt him. He married into the Hasmonean dynasty, right? That works for some people. So he, met, he marries the granddaughter of Hyrcanus, the beautiful Miriam. Uh, um, it wasn't just political. Apparently she was beautiful and Herod reportedly was love struck by her, but her love was just one more thing out of Herod's grasp. While on the surface, a strong political move, you know, it brought the illegitimacy and threats of the Hasmoneans closer to home. And it's said that every time Herod embraced her, she would moan in disgust. Man, Herod. And his mother-in-law, that's Miriam's mother, also despised Herod. She conspired with Cleopatra, with Egypt, uh, to politically force Herod to appoint Miriam's brother, another Hasmonean, he was only 16 years old at the time, to appoint him to be high priest. Well, well, that was a big problem for Herod, ultimately. Aristobulus III, a legitimate Hasmonean heir to the throne, was handsome and regal, and the people loved him. Uh, right? He, would look, he looks like a true king of the Jews, something that Herod never did. Well, Herod had him drowned. 
So from you get it, most of his 37 years as king, he became paranoid, neurotically afraid of being murdered and losing his throne, his dynasty, uh, the palace. Get this, his 10 wives and many sons, most of which were as ruthless as their father. And, and you know, it, it would be a great TV series, I think. It's almost unbelievable. In a period of 18 years, Herod had seven wills drawn up, each each with a different set of successors to the throne. The previous beneficiaries had either been arrested or executed or exiled or just fallen out of favor. It was a mess. He had his son Aristobulus executed in 7 BC. Then in 4 BC, just five days before his own death, he had uh, his two two other sons uh, killed, Antipater and Alexander. Oh my gosh. And that led Augustus, the king, the Roman emperor, to criticize that it was preferable to be Herod's pig than his son. Herod just, his when he triggered, when his amygdala triggered, he reverted to violence. I mean, fight, right? He used mercenaries. He used secret police to enforce order. In just a few short years, he brutally crushed the Jewish popular opposition to his reign in Galilee. He slaughtered entire families in hiding in the caves of Arbela. He had a rebellion in Judea, which was also settled by wholesale slaughter in the streets. The historian Josephus says, quote, and whole masses were slaughtered in the alleys, crowded in their houses, and even taking refuge in the temple. There was no mercy for whether young or old. Nor were the weakest women spared. Like madmen, Herod's troops took vengeance on all ages. Close quote. Now, to, I mean, to be fair, Herod did do some things that improved lives of regular Jews. In 20 BC, he dramatically reduced taxes, but along with that, he required oaths of loyalty from people, and that was not received well. And if one wouldn't give it, they would be tortured or killed. He began vast construction projects in Jerusalem. In addition to the temple, he built a new marketplace, an amphitheater, a new building for the Sanhedrin, a new royal palace. He also built huge fortresses around Judea and Galilee, like the Herodian and Masada, places where he said that even God would not dare to build. He was successful in one area. He got Rome. He understood Rome and how to gain a reputation in the court of Augustus. You can't understand the Roman society inner workings without a mention of the important social practice of patronage called Romanoi Uergatoi, Roman benefactors. Uh, so like the Roman highways that interlaced the entire Roman Empire, bringing commerce and wealth and culture and import to even the far-flung colonies, one of the secrets of the Roman Empire, there was another equally powerful and important system of patron-client relationships that did the same thing with wealth and influence and donation and honor. In the emperor in Herod's time was Augustus. He was the highest patron. Um, so think a pyramid. He established a network of high-level patronage relationships just beneath him. And these were men and women that he was very generous with money and influence and power and name and reputation. And Herod was one of those. One of, at the highest level, he was labeled the friend of Augustus. His patronage generosity was funneled down the economic pyramid to help provinces and cities and families throughout the empire. I mean, think of an honor pyramid. It included a vast array of the society's wealthiest men and women who were then expected to become generous patrons to the cities and the lower societal rungs in the name of the emperor. 
and to not do so would be shameful. So this institution of euergetism, the system of moral duties and legal obligations, it emerged in the Greek city-states earlier in the Hellenistic period, and it required, I mean, a strong word, but it was just the culture. It required the local wealthy who had benefited from the system to assume, at their own expense, uh, most of the financial burden of running the cities. And Herod, whose vast wealth, I mean, he was stinking wealthy, he got his wealth largely from taxes from the lucrative trade routes that went through his territories. And he became a well-known, throughout the empire, a well-known patron benefactor. In Asia Minor and Greece, he assisted cities financially, he made loans, he helped build ships and underwrote local public works and, and restored the Pythian Temple to Apollo in Rhodes. He made a gracious gift to the Olympic Games and received the title President for Life. He gave to other projects in Pergamum, Samos, Athens, Sparta, Damascus, Antioch, just to mention a few. The historian Josephus wrote that Caesar himself remarked that the extent of Herod's realm was not equal to his magnanimity. Well, what do patrons like Herod get out of the relationship? Well, they receive public respect and honor and public acclamation, everything that Herod wanted on, on the basis of their greatness and generosity. And Herod received some of that internationally, but not in Judea. So they get social status in an honor-shame culture. And Herod was jonesing for that. And for someone as wealthy as Herod, to not be a great patron would have been shameful. And he played the role brilliantly. And this was one of the main roles of the practice of emperor worship. Not to say that there weren't religious and liturgical implications, expectations of healing and uh, more children and miracles and stuff, but the temple to the emperor and the practice of public worship of the emperor was a response of thanks and public gratitude for gifts given by Rome and ongoing hope for more gifts in a city. So if you were a city in the Roman Empire and wanted to get on the good on the good side of Augustus and to get vast sums of cash and influence, uh, you would necessarily set up a temple to the emperor. And you would refer to him as a god, even if you didn't believe it. Or like Herod did, you can upgrade a port on the Mediterranean Sea. In fact, make it one of the major international ports on the Mediterranean. Uh, and th this was the port that carried goods like gold and frankincense and myrrh to Rome. And, and you rename that after Caesar. You call it Caesarea Maritime. If you go to Israel on a typical 10-day tour, the first stop will be to the ruins of this ancient port city, Caesarea Maritime. Then if you were a local wergatoy and wanted to be recognized by the emperor in hopes of being given greater honor and wealth, you would give graciously to the project and, and the ongoing upkeep of the temple or the port or the cult or the buildings or the Olympic Games. And for this, you would be publicly noticed in proclamation or even better, by inscription somewhere on the building or the temple. And in inscriptions, we see honor and praise given to the gods and to, quote, Roman benefactors. So Romanoi Uergatoi generously gave to the empire in the name and to the glory of emperor, and Herod, believe me, was second to none. And he was rewarded by Augustus in name and power, influence and acclaim. I mean, Augustus did publicly honor Herod over and over, but that wasn't enough for Herod. At his deathbed, Augustus had, for the most part, turned his back on his old friend. It was just getting too weird in his family. It didn't look like August, uh, Herod could handle it. Uh, Herod had to be, on his deathbed, aware that his glory was about to be divided up, parsed between 
his three remaining sons, right? He had just killed three of them. So the three remaining sons, all of them under 20 years old. His son Archelaus would become king of Judea. Uh, but you know what? Hist- we know he's going to be removed from Rome in just a few years after he just horribly mismanaged his legacy. He was replaced then with a series of Roman procurators, not Hasmoneans, not other children of Herod. Uh, Herod's dynasty in Judea was done in six years, in eight years. And uh, someone we don't know anything about, Caponius, was put on the the throne, so to speak, a Roman. And the string of prefects and procurators in AD 26 is going to include someone you've heard of, Pontius Pilate. So Herod's dynasty wasn't going to last long. So back to the Christmas pageant story. Is it any wonder when Magi, Seiru, we'll say more about them, from Eastern Parthian countries came on official business and asked where the legit the real king of the Jews was to be born, was it any wonder that Herod freaked out? But there's another way of seeing it. Herod couldn't. His midbrain was exploding in fear cycle, fight, flight, and freeze. In his case, it was always violent fight. But I'm going to suggest that, look, and I wouldn't have done this, but God is way more gracious than me. God seems to be, seems to be, there's one way you can read it, bringing a personal invitation to Herod, of all people, implicitly letting him know that there is a path for an end to his painful alienation. Ironically, it's from representatives of the enemy, Parthians, representatives of the alienated and formerly great name only now, kings of the East. I mean, see Herod, they might have said, look at us, the Magi, right? Who would think that we would ever be insiders in Yahweh's throne room, much less due to all the blessings promised to Abraham after all we did to Israel? But we're there. We're here. We're we're laying all of our crowns down. And there's room in this entourage, this Parthian entourage, Herod, for one more king, one more wise man. And all Herod had to do was come, admit his real need, and to give his need as a loyalty gift to the new king. All he had to do was to bring his crown. You know, the one that never quite fit on his head, the one that he was never comfortable with or satisfied with, and just lay it down. He didn't have to be recircumcised. Remember, the Nabataeans were forced to be circumcised a couple generations before. No need to be recircumcised as a Jew or rebaptized or recatechized. Uh, no sacrifice needed other than the throne. This permanent reattachment wouldn't have been based on anything that Herod did or didn't do. And it would have been in spite of all of his violence and murder and dehumanization to God's people, right? Nothing, here's the point. Nothing, here's the gospel. Nothing he had done had yet disqualified him from this good news, this advent, this, this new king of the Jews. All he had to do was come and proskuneo. Um, and Herod, you will become a real Jew in full birthright. Finally, Herod, you will be legally adopted son of God. And that's a title, an Old Testament title for the God-ordained King of the Jews. Look at Psalm 2. And there's nothing more Jewish than that, whether you were born a physical son of Abraham or not, Herod. And what would he have received in this honor-shame culture? Well, honor, glory, adoption, eternal favor, only do a great king and all of his people. Everything that Herod deeply, deeply wanted and needed. He would have been given acceptance. What a laugh that 
God sent Parthian ambassadors as part of the invite. I mean, I love it. I, I mean, I love God's sense of humor there. Remember, they were Herod's perennial enemies. They were always threats to his throne. There's no reason, humanly speaking, that he would trust them. He had to defeat them militarily on a number of occasions. And it was Parthians who had paid and and uh, funded intrigue from the Sadduceans, right? So these were not uh, friends of Herod. And so Herod always had to be paranoid and watchful of the politics when the Parthians were always trying to undermine him. He, he didn't hate any people group, any empire more than the Parthians. So it's as if God was saying, uh, see, Herod, see what I can do with any and all outsiders, including enemies. I mean, who is more outside than, than the Parthians? Well, Herod, maybe you and all you need to do is to follow the Parthians, finally, and do what they're going to do. Uh, then, and only then, will you become an insider. Then you're going to become, finally, Herod, really, Herod the Great. Then you will know love. The height and width and length and depth of, depth of the love of Christ, the King. Then you might even begin to feel love for others and less violent. Herod, come. But we know he didn't. All right, one last aha moment. Think of the picture as the Parthian, unbelieving, non-Jewish, non-kosher, unrighteous Gentiles. They're having their audience with the king, with, with God himself, the physical presence of the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God in flesh. Right? Got it? Are you picking up what I'm saying? They're in the full regalia with offerings for the king, for, for God. They come into his official audience proclaiming their allegiance and loyalty and proskuneo. Well, what does that remind you of a little bit? Well, the one day in the Jewish year, a high priest enters the presence of God's glory, lays down an offering made up of blood of the goat and all of the promises and resolutions of the Jews to be faithful the next year. And that's, it seems like it's a replay of the Day of Atonement. These outsiders, uh, Parthians, became the high priest. Makes sense. And that shouldn't surprise us when God rewrites narratives. It's amazing. It's, it's fun. It's ironical. Uh, when, and when we are ushered into God's presence, we're part of that, right? In our advent, we also become priests when we lay down our offerings, our gold and frankincense and myrrh. That's what God does. He rescues those who are denied access to God's favor previously, and he adopts them as his sons and daughters and gives them free access. And then he raises us up with great calling and value and honor and worth. So the overlooked, remember, think song, uh, Sermon on the Mount? Overlooked, the poor in spirit, the alienated, those who have perennially lacked enoughness and, and have disconnectedness here, but they don't have it anymore, not in the presence of God, the infant. And uh, irony, Herod, no one wanted that more, but Herod refused. Yeah, happens all the time. Tragic. Unfortunately, I accepted. Whew. Look, the hope to end alienation within our souls or globally among nations and races and political parties and people groups and skin colors and sexes and religions is not a change at all, but a person. The single de-alienator, the only human slash God who knows no alienation, who will not tolerate alienation and exploitation, come and be touched by him. Come and touch him. Come look into his eyes, the eyes of the living, breathing, 
child of God, to end our alienation. Come and see what non-alienation looks like and feels like. It's Emmanuel, God, with us. God not alienated from us, us not alienated from God anymore. God not exploiting us, but God being with us no matter who you are and what you've done or what's been done to you. God saying physically that he will not be apart from us anymore experientially. It's only at the foot of the manger. And we stop defining ourselves by what we do, how I look, how I feel, my success, the past or present, what's been done to me, all those ways of how I previously defined myself. Uh, In the Sermon on the Mount, we talk about prayer. I don't define myself on, on how I pray. I take on the glorious identity of the one who is with him. I am now with him. That's my new identity. The Trinity plus, right, is restored. Um, And by the way, check out the, the dance, www.the-dance.org. This is all that that's about. If you want to experience it more this Christmas season, check it out. So now at the foot of Jesus, I'm more human than I was before. And I less feel the need to exploit others who are human. A little, not heaven, but it should be noticeable because I'm with the de-alienator, the child king. I touch him and I'm changed. I look into his eyes and I can feel adored. I can feel honor. I feel glory, value, worth in his eyes. And I feel adoration for him. I proskuneo because I want to. It's a great thing. Not perfectly, that's heaven. All right, we need to wrap this podcast up. Next time, we're going to look at the Magi some. Who were they and what can we learn about the gospel from them? You may be surprised. I want to take just a second to thank the team at lifeaudio.com. If you go to lifeaudio.com, you're going to find dozens of other faith-centered podcasts. All right, see you next time. And until next time, take heart, child of God. Is life feeling chaotic? I get it. I'm Rachel Wojo, host of the Untangling Life podcast. Don't miss the passionate encouragement and faith-based resources you need to help you clear your head and calm your heart. As Shell says, it feels like Rachel always knows what I need to hear. She keeps it real and is so humble. Her podcast is just the cherry on top. Enjoy Untangling Life with Rachel Wojo on lifeaudio.com or your favorite podcast app now.